I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so thrilled to have my next guest. We have Vicki Sai, who is the founder of Tatcha. And we are really, really, really thrilled. I'm a big fan of Tatcha, big fan of her. I was finally introduced to Vicky. She is uh, also a member of YPO. And uh, actually, when I left my forum group, graduated out of my forum group, I found out that she came into the forum group and uh, I was so bummed that I missed her in in the process. So very, very thrilled to finally get a chance to meet her. I knew a little bit about her story, but was able to get a little more taste of her story. And now we have her here to even share even more. So very, very thrilled. And just to give a little bit of background on Tatcha for those who may not be familiar with it, it's a skincare brand based on Japanese beauty rituals. And on a trip to Kyoto in 2008, Vicky became so inspired by the beauty secrets and rituals of Japanese culture that she was healing her deep struggle with dermatitis with that she left her job and created a skincare brand called Tatcha. She even sold her engagement ring, which is like, I mean, crazy, crazy, crazy on so many levels in order to fund the launch. And then in 2009, Tatcha actually became uh, the product that hit the shelves, and she is uh, the founder, will always be the founder. Uh, she was the CEO as well for many, many years, and she can talk a little bit about that. Uh, the company was sold to Unilever a few years ago. She was actually asked to come back in and help really build the brand inside of Unilever. So I'm really excited to hear more about Vicky's journey as well as more about Tatcha and all she is up to. So Thank you so much for joining us, Vicki. It is an honor, Kara. I'm such a fan of what you've created in uh, Hint and, and everything. So yay. Thank you. Really, really psyched. So before we get into hearing about Tatcha and your journey as an entrepreneur, I'd love to hear more about you and what you were, like, what exactly were you doing before you decided to start Tatcha? Oh, my journey to entrepreneurship was not at all a straight path. I never thought I'd be an entrepreneur. I'm an immigrant kid. My parents are from Taiwan and I was born here in the US. I started off as a credit derivatives trader on Wall Street. And then my husband and I were at Ground Zero on 9-11. And that was really an early catalyst for me to start thinking differently about how I wanted to use the waking hours of my life. And so we went from this meandering path from there to business school, business school to general management and marketing, Starbucks, China, Silicon Valley. And then eventually one day I woke up, I was 31. I was living in San Francisco. I had tons of business school debt, mortgage debt, credit card debt. 
I'd worked in big companies, medium-sized companies, startup, both coasts, different industries, and nothing felt like it fit. It was like the three little bears. This one's too big. Mm -hmm. Nothing was just right. But the prettier my resume got, the more empty I felt. And then one day this other voice just came out and I said, I choose happiness. And then it went from there. I love that. I was reading an interview that you did and I heard you say that you started Tatcha because you were searching. And I think that that is a common thread amongst the best entrepreneurs that they're searching. Sometimes they stumble upon uh, an idea and they can't get it out of their head. Do you think that the best entrepreneurs uh, would say that as well as you think about entrepreneurs that you've met or that you've read about? Yeah, when I think about the ones that I admire most, they're trying to understand a part of themselves, but then they also have something in the world that they they want to see come to life. For me, I was searching for healing, both mm-hmm. for my skin, but, but spiritually. And I think that's why I was drawn to Kyoto, even though I'm not Japanese. Um, I think many people throughout the world who have never been to Kyoto but are still drawn to the idea of it because it represents the center of healing. There's over 2,000 temples there. Um, but I think that's pretty consistent for the entrepreneurs that I've met who, who are trying to create something of value um, beyond money. Kyoto is such a beautiful place. We went a few years ago and uh, I just fell in love. It is just absolutely gorgeous on on so many levels and really has an energy to it that is uh, hard to describe, actually, unless uh, you've been there. So what drew you to go on that trip? And actually, uh, were you exploring, thinking that you were going to potentially start Tatcha at that point? Or were you just sort of uh, exploring, uh, searching? Yeah, I didn't think I was going to start a company. In fact, when I was in business school, I took one of those personality assessment tests to see what, like, what my career should be since I didn't want to do Wall Street anymore. And the thing that came up was entrepreneurship. And I was like, ew, no, ew, that's (laughs) ew, too much risk, too much debt. I can't do that. Um, But when I said I choose happiness, at the same time, I ran out of these blotting papers that I used to get when I would fly through Japan to China for Starbucks. And I I was dependent on them because I had acute dermatitis for three years prior to that. So my skin was always blistering, bleeding, scaling my lips, my eyelids. I was on steroids and antibiotics every day for that time. The only thing I could use on my face was basically Vaseline, so it wouldn't be so painful. But then I look like a greasy hot mess all the time. And so these these blotting papers in Japan were the only things I could use to sort of like slick away the grease. And then I ran out of them at the same time. Um, so a friend of mine from Starbucks Japan was like, well, the ones that you like are not available in the U.S. They're originally from Gold Leaf Artisans in Japan. And um, it was one of those, like you pull a thread on a sweater and the whole thing keeps unraveling. And more she told me the more I was just intrigued so I ended up going to Japan didn't know anybody didn't have any money it was it was very uncharacteristic of me to just go but then when I went there I had you know an experience that that completely changed um my life and it was the energy there too that you're speaking of and I as I came back and I started healing I was like I need to find a way to keep this in my life just desperately, personally, I need it. Uh, and so I created Tatsu just as a way of sharing these healing experiences, rituals, people, ingredients um, with other people who might who might be needing some healing as well. 
How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. No English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. 
I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. So I'd love for you to share that story too. Like, what was it when when you got there that was just, I mean, it's a beautiful story. I'll let you tell it. So my first city that I went to in Kyoto, I asked the hotel to find me a driver so I could go see the city and take some pictures. And so they um, ordered a driver for me for the full day. His name was Tuita-san. And I was pregnant and um, halfway through the day, I just couldn't handle it anymore. It was hot. I was throwing up everywhere. Um, it was beautiful, but I just I couldn't I couldn't do it. And so I told him, I'm so, so, so sorry, but I'm going to have to cancel the second half of the day. I have to go lie down. Um, he said, no problem. So I went back to the hotel and I passed out. And then I think five, six hours later, I woke up and like the light was blinking on the phone, um, which said I had a message. And the message was that there's a package for me at the front desk. And um that was strange to me because nobody knew I was in Japan. I didn't know anybody in Japan. So I went down there and instead of getting another ride for the second half of the day, he drove home um, an hour and a half, spent the entire afternoon burning thousands of photos of Kyoto onto four CDs, printed up a picture of me that he had taken shortly after I threw up, so it wasn't the best picture, cut them out in a circle and volume one, two, three, four, and glued them onto these CDs and then drove an hour and a half back and left them for me at the front desk. And um, he said, since you couldn't see Kyoto, I brought Kyoto to you. And Japan's not a tipping culture. So he didn't do this. You know, I cost him half a day's wage. He didn't do this for a tip. He thought he'd never see me again. He just did it um, as an act of kindness. And so that was that was when I fell in love with Japan. And what I've since learned is what he did is um, called omotenashi. And we translate in the U.S. as uh, customer service, but it's not customer service. Um, to me, I think it's really about making someone else's happiness your happiness. It's an underpinning philosophy to Japanese culture. And it was um, an act of kindness that sort of had a butterfly effect that I hope spreads through the work that we do. Oh, I, it's so beautiful. So was this was this trip also the trip where you met the geisha? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's incredible. Yeah, I'd love to hear that too. Yeah, I, I went and I met the Goldie Partisans after that. And um, I asked them, is it true that these blotting papers that, I, that I've been using to take care of my skin, that they're the byproduct of the Goldie hammering process? But they said, yeah, we things that are in Japan that are precious are leafed in gold. And then um, the way that you turn gold and turn it into gold leaf is you have to hammer it. And so this is paper that we use during the hammering process so that the gold doesn't stick together and you don't end up with a big gold hammer. 
But as a paper gets hammered, it becomes very, very thin and soft and as a result absorb it because the fibers spread out like that. Um, and then we would throw the papers away and then the geisha or kabuki actors would come and they'd pick it up and they'd use it on their skin. And so you'd have to ask them how they figured out that it was good for skin and, and helping to set makeup. And I was like, are geisha real? And they said, yeah. And they introduced me to one and I, that which is crazy. Now I've studied with 15 of them. There's one on my, on my team, but it's, it's really, really hard to meet them. So it was definitely, you know, fate, uh, inter, intervened and made that possible for me. But I interviewed her and um, the things that she shared with me really changed my understanding of concepts of beauty, um, as well as introducing me to rituals that ended up healing my skin. Um, so it was, it was an incredible experience. That's incredible. So that was, was so, so was it at that point the papers that were really uh, the thing that kind of healed your skin or were there other things that were uh, coming up as as definitely things that you needed as far as skincare. So she told me where they got their their um, ingredients. And then um, Yuko, my translator, like wrote down on these packages for me what they were, how to use them. And I used half of the wrong, but they did heal my skin. Um, what I learned was it was a very, very, very simple approach to skincare. Most of the ingredients come from food, rice, green tea, seaweed, but it's the opposite of what we're used to. And so they wash their face with an oil, which until recently in the U.S. was not something that we thought of. Um, they polish their skin every day like a jewel, whereas we tend to exfoliate once a week or more occasionally than that, but we use something a bit more aggressive that can leave the skin inflamed. Um, they use an essence every day, um, which can increase hydration of the skin by up to 700% instantly. Um, but in the U.S., that's not really a big category. Um, and then their uh, moisturizers are very, very light because your skin is already full of hydration. And so it's really about nourishing, cocooning the skin in the end. Whereas in the U.S., we tend to use things that are very, very rich because we feel like we need it, you know, like yeah. just richer is better. And so it's a very, very, very different approach to, to caring for the skin. So you fell in love uh, with this product and, and your curiosity clearly was driving you to ask more and more questions and you saw for yourself how it was solving the problem. At, at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to go do this. I'm going to actually bring this to more people because maybe others have this problem as well. When I finished interviewing that first geisha, um, she was walking away. And I watched her walk away on this cobblestone street. I saw the picture. And in that moment, this thing happened that has still never happened since where this entire movie just showed up in my head and I could see it. I could see the whole thing. And um, it almost felt like a download um, of what I was supposed to do. And so in some ways against my personality and better judgment, I was like, I have to, I have to follow this now. And so that's when I went back to my hotel room and told my husband, I'm going to start by 10,000 body papers as a starting point, but then I need to research this. And I think there's a lot more there. Um, but it's so opposite of my personality. Um, and financially, we weren't set up to do that at all, but I felt compelled. Um, and then for the next 14 years, anytime I didn't know what to do with the company, I could sort of let my mind soften and go to this more still deeper place and I could see the movie and then I just do what I see. And, and so where did the name Tatcha come from? So first it means nothing. 
Um, it's completely made up. Um, my co-founder, who is an incredible creative, his name is Stanley Hainsworth. He used to be global head of creative for Starbucks and um, uh, Lego. Um, he's he's incredible. Um, I told him that I wanted to create something that felt like an exhale, like like a release, mm-hmm. and mean anything so that we can infuse it with meaning. So he came up with Tatcha. And then this incredible woman, Nami Onodera, joined the founding team. And she's from Tokyo originally. And she said, when I saw that word, I thought of Tachibana, which is the art of a single standing flower in Japan. And it invites you to see the beauty of something when you strip away all the excess. And so, um, you know, we're very open about it. It it has really two origins. One is is just hopefully the feeling that you have when you just release and exhale and surrender. And then the other is the beauty of something when you strip away the excess. Uh, it, it's so beautiful. Uh, it's uh, when I when I first saw it, I uh, I really did think that there was some kind of meaning behind it, and uh, maybe translated into something. So it's uh, it really is such a perfect name. So it's uh, it's great. It's really wonderful, and your packaging obviously is beautiful too. So. Uh, the the first product then were the papers. Did you only launch with that product? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that-, um, and that was the only product for the first three years because um, since I was pregnant at the time, I had been struggling with acute dermatitis. I had worked at a sustainability-focused startup um, prior to that in Silicon Valley that was led by um, sustainability thought leaders. I'd become deeply aware of the environmental, personal, and health impacts of different ingredients in the personal care space. So we realized quickly that if we wanted to bring these rituals to life in an authentic and um, pure way, we were going to have to do it the old-fashioned way, which is hire your own scientists, if necessary, grow your own plants, make your own extracts, your own formulas from scratch like a couture dress. Um, Most of the beauty industry is white label. Mm -hmm. There's thousands of brands, which there are, but there's only a handful of manufacturers and you go and you, you know, buy a product, you put in 0.0001% of a marketing ingredient in there, you slap your name on it, you slap your fragrance, and you put out the door. And that's how um, that's how people who otherwise don't have any background in beauty chemistry are suddenly online and on TV selling 18 key skincare collections. And that's one way to do it. Um in order for us to create something that was true to our our intentions, we, we couldn't do it that way. And mm-hmm. so it took three years of R&D um, and up to $250,000 per formula to ensure that it's safe and efficacious and worthy of the people that we create them for. I was reading uh, an article that, that they interviewed you for too, where you talked about the skincare is not actually regulated by the FDA unless, you know, maybe it's sunscreen or some of the other segments of, a, of it. But I think most people don't understand that. And yet uh, it's ab- absorbed into the skin and, uh, and can actually do quite a bit of harm. It's your largest organ, right? And it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I don't think anybody comes into the industry wanting to hurt anybody, but um, the bar is very, very low in terms of how easily you can bring a product to market um, that you can make very profitable and not do all the steps to make sure that it's actually going to care for the skin. So you've worked in a number of different industries. You've talked about a few of those, but you had never done 
your own company and your own physical product in beauty. Um, and uh, I read that you didn't always own that you were the CEO of Tatcha, even though you had gone to Harvard Business School, you were, um, you know, completely qualified uh, to go and and do this. Why do you think that's the case? So it's interesting. I had some background in beauty. I grew up working in my mom's skincare store. Um, I worked, I interned at uh, the largest uh, beauty company in the world during business school. Um, I studied it during business school. Uh, I did actually consult for one of the other largest uh, beauty care companies in the world of the the board before I started Tatcha because I had four jobs. I also did another job where I created a body care line um, for another brand. before I started Tatcha. And so I did have quite a bit of background in beauty and business by the time that I started Tatcha. Um, And yet I never felt worthy of calling myself a CEO. Um, I think a lot of it is because um, when I was in my corporate career before that, even though my results were always great, I always got these sort of mediocre, underwhelming performance reviews. And, um, it was always around leadership. And um, there was sort of these um, subjective measures of uh, my leadership potential. But then when I asked for the details of where I could further develop my leadership, it was always an empty box. Like they never gave me any details for why they gave me low ratings there. They just gave me a low rating in an empty box. And, and it happened over and over and over again. Um, and so, of course, there was a part of me that's like, yeah, screw you. Yeah. My results were phenomenal. You're yeah. welcome. Yeah. But on the other side, you can't help but internalize it a little bit and think there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. And so by the time that I started my own company, particularly because as women and then as women of color, you're often the only one in the space that looks like you. So then you really feel like one of these kids is not like the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then you're like, I, maybe I don't belong here. And so you're right. I, I hid the fact that I went to Harvard Business School. Um, throughout most of my tenure as CEO of Tatcha because um, I felt that people would get turned off by that, um, by my ambition or my my um, credentials. I didn't call myself a CEO. I called myself chief treasure hunter. Um, when investors and others introduced my co-founder, who was president as CEO and never corrected them, um, and I actually asked my co-founder to take the CEO title multiple times, but he refused because he said, you're the one who does the work. I'm not taking the title. Wow. Amazing. Uh, So funding for a company is often tough for, especially for first-time entrepreneurs, not to mention women or people who fall under the category of diverse. Knowing what you know today, what advice would you give to others for funding their company. Uh, you actually had raised funding um, through the process and yeah. there's different types of funding, of course. Um, there's angels, there's venture, private equity, family offices. But knowing what you know today, what what is sort of the red flag that is out there that you should just be really careful about? Oh, that's many books unto itself, yeah, as you know, Kara. Exactly. <laughs> um, you and I, I should write the book together. Oh, oh. <laughs> I was so lucky because my um, co-founder, Brad Murray, came from the private equity space and he was phenomenal at raising money. Um, And yet he had to work so hard to raise money. And we did have to rely on angels, friends and family and ourselves. And it's why we didn't take a salary for nine years. Um, So 
what I wish I knew then that I didn't realize until the end of my my journey as CEO was that less than 5% of VC dollars go to women-founded businesses. And less than 5% of VCs are women. Um, I have not seen statistics about the racial breakdown, but I think it's very likely to assume that a very small percentage of that 5% actually goes to diverse women. Um, there was also a disturbing statistic that if you have a co-founder that is a male, your likelihood of getting funded goes something goes up like 800%, something like that. Um, and I was very lucky that I had Brad. Um, so the odds are stacked against you when you are a woman and when you are diverse. Um, and I internalized that because I did not know those statistics. So every time we were turned down for funding, I assumed it was because there's something wrong with me as a leader and something wrong with the business. Now I can look back and say, it's just, it's a completely different playing field. Um, once we were able to get funding, the first thing that happened was I was asked to step down as CEO. And um, it was almost a relief because I was like, well, at least someone's finally saying it out loud. I'm not qualified to do this. In retrospect, I was more than qualified. I should have never stepped down, but everything happens for a reason and I don't regret any of it. The company's stronger for what we've been through. I'm a better leader for what I've been through. Um, but I would look at, I would look at board rights, voting rights, really have conversations with investors and acquirers ahead of time to make sure that you've shared goals and visions. But even if you do that, that assumes that you have options. Mm -hmm. Most of us don't have options. So you can say, well, you can be a better negotiator, but if you've only got one option. Yeah. No, abs yeah. absolutely. So I think there's also, even if you do everything right, sometimes the people change, right? People move and other people come in and those are not the people that you necessarily uh, inked your deal with. Totally. Um, in that case, I self-sabotaged. Yeah. The, the operating partners who did the deal with us at the private equity firm, they were incredible and they ended up being incredible and the highest integrity people I could ask to work with through the very end. But when an operating partner under them, a lawyer, had said to me in a very threatening way that he he felt that I should step down, I let this like middle manager at a small private equity firm just like mansplain me out of my job. Mm -hmm. And I was like, okay, yeah, you're right. But like, I have to own my side of the street on that. Why did I just roll over and say, you're right, I should fire myself. Like, why didn't I, yeah. why didn't I stand up for myself and say, you pound sand? It's fascinating. I was talking to an entrepreneur, a female entrepreneur the other day, and she and I were having uh, this conversation. She's going through a very terrible uh, situation herself right now. And I think, unfortunately, uh, there are people that prey on people that are, uh, forget about the women and diverse and all of that for a minute. But to be an entrepreneur, you get, you're exhausted. Right. Especially after, you know, nine years, uh, you know, 16 Children. years, whatever, you're exhausted. Right. You just feel like at times you don't even know what you're saying or doing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think that they prey on those people because you get the the numbers are to a certain level and and they know who to hit. Right. And I think that it sounds crazy to anybody who has never gone through that, but I do think that there's a, you know, I'm sure if, if you ran a marathon and you were getting towards the end and, you know, somebody said, Hey, do you want to ride? 
more luckier. Sure. You know, to, to some people, not everybody, but I think there's a little bit of that. Would you agree? Yeah, for sure. For sure. And again, I don't, I don't want to believe that there's people out there who go out of their way to be predatory, but, um, people in the investing world are in the, they're in the business of, of using money to make money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's very easy to write deal terms that help ensure you make money no matter what. Mm-hmm. Um, so which means that as an entrepreneur, you can, you can lose something that you love no matter what. Yeah, no, that's so, it's so true. And I think, you know, at times you have to uh, remind these people that they have to, if you have multiple investors, even if they have a uh, preferred rights or they have to do what's right for all shareholders. Yeah. Uh, and that that is a really, really key point that I think uh, one can never forget, especially if you're on the board and you're a shareholder. So it's, okay. it's critical. Or, or uh, even can we zoom out and focus on all stakeholders? which include our employees, our clients, the environment. Like, can we think bigger and be more responsible as as human beings? Yeah, no, absolutely. So the company ultimately sold to Unilever. Uh, You were not the CEO at that point. And so what happened uh, in that situation? I mean, obviously, uh, it was during COVID um, when you ultimately came back into Unilever. But I'd love to hear that story as well. Yeah. So we brought in private equity. Um, I was encouraged to step down as CEO. Um, within a few months, I realized if I'm not going to, you know, own the company and I'm not going to run the company, I, I should find a parent company um, who will take care of it for the long term. So I immediately started the sale process as chairwoman of the board um, and sold the company to Unilever uh, within a year and a half of the private equity deal. And so I wasn't the CEO going into that deal, but I was a chairwoman. So I, I own that. Um, and Unilever ended up being an absolutely incredible parent company that I still do now and have one complaint about to this day, which is why I, I continue to stay um, involved with the company. Uh, then COVID hit. Um, then all other sorts of things happened. And they asked me to come back and execute a turnaround in uh, January of 2021. And so I never thought I was going to be a boomerang CEO. And I was living in Wyoming at that point, trying to figure out how to protect my family, keep myself safe. Um, and But I never thought twice when they asked me to come back because um, we build companies that we love. Um, so I was not going to let anything happen to it. Um, many of my employees are API women. Um, and so I, I feared very much for their safety. I feared for everybody's safety when it came to COVID. Um, how do I protect their jobs, keep them from having to go out in public until we understand, you know, the safety of all of this? Um, and so I just I felt my responsibility as a leader really quick kicked in like a mother, like mm-hmm. the this lioness came out of me and I was like, that's it. <laughs> Taking care of my cubs. And it was an incredible growth experience for everybody involved. That's that's wonderful. And you're still very involved in, in the company. And and uh, that's that's great. It's uh, definitely when you grow a company, I think it's, you don't necessarily have to remain as CEO, but I think it's just nice to know that you're, uh, that you can actually bring in a team and you can be helpful to that team because you have been through a lot in growing this company and you care. And there's many years of your life uh, that you were 
working on this and you did it from a place of love and a mission. And I think it's totally, beautiful. Totally. I think the founder's like a mother and you're an amazing mother, I know. So no matter how old they get and how much they grow up uh, and leave the home, leave the nest, you know, they know that they can always come back to you when they need advice and that you're always going to love them. That's incredible. What is the product today? Uh, you still have all of the beautiful products from from the beginning, the papers, et cetera. But what is the product today that you are most excited about for Tatcha? Oh, that's such a good question. Um, the one of the biggest things that I've learned about from studying in Japan with scientists, with Zen monks, with geisha um, for the last now almost 15 years is a connection between our mind and our bodies particularly the connection between our skin and our mind. And so when I was covered in hives and I had acute dermatitis, and then after that for many years, I had um, eczema and hives that would cover my entire body. I knew instinctively that it had something to do with stress, but I didn't understand how deeply tied it was. Um, now we are starting to understand the body in a much more integrative way in the Western world, which has always been the case in the Eastern world, which is why they call Eastern medicine holistic medicine. They, mm -hmm. Everything is connected. In the Western world, it's been very segmented. So you had you know, a doctor for your guts and a doctor for your brain and a doctor for your heart. Now things are starting to converge and you'll see a lot, a lot of talk, especially in, in where you live around integrative medicine. And so um, the idea of the connection between the gut and the mind has really come to the fore in the Western world in the last decade. And so like we used to think serotonin, the feel-good chemicals, you know, all from the brain. Now we know a lot of it's from the gut. Now they're looking at the gut-skin-brain axis. So it turns mm -hmm. out that your skin and your brain have been developing together since your stem cells. One's your largest, you know, sensory organ. The other one tells everybody else what to do. So they're constantly talking and your skin both affects and reflects your mind. And so like when you're um, embarrassed, you blush. When you're in love, you glow. When you're depressed, you turn gray. Um, when you're scared, you get goosebumps. That's how connected your mind and your skin are. Hmm. And so firstly, a lot of stress for a lot of people will show up through their skin. And then the way that you care for your skin can also help you care for your mind. So we always say we're not in the skincare business. We're in the business of taking care of people through their skin. During the trauma of COVID um, and the turnaround and all that stuff that happens, my entire body erupted again in hives. It was like the whole journey restarted from the very beginning. Um, and I was like, come on, Vicky, you have the tools to deal with this. And so we went back to indigo, Japanese indigo, which samurai have long used to help protect their bodies um, during battle from burns and scars. It's uh, anti-inflammatory. There's great research out of Asia around um, the anti-inflammatory benefits that are comparable to um, mm -hmm. without the side effects. And so we went back to our indigo collection to see how we can create things that are going to help people calm and strengthen their skin. But we also started introducing uh, ingredients in there that are known to help calm the mind. So it's called neurocosmetics. Um, and then also rituals around uh, the skincare that can help really calm the spirit. And then we started putting uh, monitors on the brain and then also monitors on the eyes. Did some pretty extensive clinical testing to see how it decreased the anxiety and stress in the body. And we found that, you know, you can really, really decrease your stress by um, using skincare as a catalyst for health and well-being. So my personal favorite is the entire Indigo collection, but there's this one Indigo Overnight Recovery Cream. And um, I put it on my skin every night, especially if I've got anything that's burning or dry or itchy. And then I also have a little meditative ritual that I do with it. And then in the morning when I wake up, 
I feel really settled in my spirit, but then my skin is really resilient and glowing again too. So understanding that skincare can be a catalyst for health and well-being, I think it's the biggest transformation I've had. That's amazing. So very, very excited to try that. So uh, knowing what you know today about uh, maybe you've gotten a lot of advice over the years, some good, some bad, what advice would you give yourself as you were thinking about starting a company and scaling a company and everything that you've been through? What advice would you give yourself? Oh, so much. If I could talk to my younger self again, I would say optimize for energy, don't optimize for productivity. I think before COVID, you know, it was hustle culture. We're just trying to survive. We're just trying to make it. We're just trying to prove ourselves. And I treated my body like a used car. Like I'm going to get another one in this lifetime. And I just like, I we just, just ground it to nothing. I, so I'm telling all these messages through my brand of being gentle with yourself and self-compassion, taking care of yourself. But the truth is I was, I was grinding it out. And you know, those hundred hour work weeks, flying a million miles, going to sleep with sleeping pills, waking up with um, coffee and, and just not taking care of yourself. Like it, there's a cost to that. But I was just trying to like squeeze as much out of my body as I could. Like it didn't matter. And then now on the other side of all of this, I'm like, you know, if I optimize for energy, the things that give me energy, the things that give me joy, then I'll naturally be more productive. And then I'll naturally have more time to get things done and then also rest. And so I would have, I would have just changed the way that I thought about how I was going to use my day. That's wonderful advice. So it was such a pleasure having you here today, Vicki. And thank you for all of your wisdom and sharing your learnings too. It means a lot. And I know there are going to be people listening who are going to get a lot out of this. So thank you again. And thanks everybody for listening. Have a great rest of the week, everyone. Thanks again for listening to The Kara Golden Show. If you would, please give us a review and feel free to share this podcast with others who would benefit. And of course, feel free to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of our podcast. Just a reminder that I can be found on all platforms at Kara Golden. And if you want to hear more about my journey, I hope you will have a listen or pick up a copy of my book, Undaunted, which I share my journey including founding and building Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And thanks everyone for listening. Have a great rest of the week and 2023 and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I wanna talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head-on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Kara Golden. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.